Thank you very much, Andy. Let's keep that open and we'll have a look at this uh, first few verses of this extraordinary story in a second. Let's pray together first, though. Father God, thank you uh, for your word and thank you for Jesus, the living word. And this Easter season, thank you for his risen life and his spirit in us. We pray that by your spirit you will speak to us now and reveal your hand at work for good your compassion and kindness, and your call to us to be your faithful people today. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a culture, don't we, that places great value on individual freedom. Um, So where in the past our choices were often influenced heavily by our family or our culture, our society, uh, where I live... Uh, what kind of job I do, who or whether I marry, more recently, we essentially make those decisions on the basis of what seems right to me, individual choice. Um, And and compared to the opposite extreme of a, a very oppressive regime that tells you exactly what to do all the time, that kind of freedom is very precious. The, the kind of romantic idea of individual freedom also has uh, an important consequence to it, uh, or a, a flip side to it. We can forget this, that choices that we make in freedom have consequences, don't they? You know, we learn the lesson very early in life, don't we? Um, parents, we teach our children that if they do certain things that are not right or helpful, they will have consequences. You, know, you, you keep refusing to put your shoes on to go to school, you will miss out on TV later. Choices have consequences. They're not always pleasant ones. Um, so I don't know, the decision that um, I'd apply for that job a few years ago that actually led to a, a really fulfilling career, that choice had consequences, good ones. Um, the decision whom to marry, or perhaps whom not to marry, Uh, has a huge influence on our life, or which school to hope to send our children to. Choices have consequences. Some of the choices have good consequences. Others, though, tragically, will have been choices that people here we made in the past that actually brought great pain upon us or upon other people, unforeseen. And we may be even left wondering... Why did God let me go down that path? Well, the book of Ruth is a love story. It's a a deeply romantic, very personal love story. Romance and drama all the way through. But it is also a spiritual story. It's in the Bible, after all, about where God is within these kinds of human circumstances, choices and consequences. Now, there are two big themes in the book, which I'll put there up on the screen. Um, The first is this, that God's work is often hidden. He doesn't always trumpet it, but it's still present. His hand's still there. And the other is that God uses faithful people, ordinary faithful people, to bring about his work. Not always a spectacular, ordinary, faithful people. 
Now, the book's set in the period of what's called the Judges, when the Judges ruled Israel, the period between the conquest of Canaan, the promised land by Israel, and the first king, King David. That period was called the Judges, when um, they they weren't judges with, like, wigs on, they were just kind of um, social leaders, civic leaders. So they were called the Judges, and they ruled before the kings came. In the English Bible, like the ones we have here, Ruth sits between, as you can see on the left-hand side there, Judges, all about that period, and the next book is Samuel, about the coming of the first king, David. And that tells us that one of the purposes of this book is to tell us something of what life at least could have been like under the Judges if God's people had been faithful. It's a glimpse of what life could have been under faith. But if you glance back to Judges, to the opposite page, the bottom of the last verse there, 21 verse 25, life under the Judges was not actually a great time. It was terrible. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And that's not seen as a good thing. It was anarchy. It was wild. Uh, And the the time of the Judges, if you read the book, it's full of extreme violence, Um, religious compromise, civil war in Israel. It's a terrible time. And Ruth actually shines in that period as like a bright interlude, a a time of some people showing real faith. And it also hints, as we'll see in the next weeks, at the coming of a king and how God's going to do that. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth's in a different place. It's not in between Joshua and Samuel, it's in what's called the writings, the the last collection in the Hebrew Bible, which is books like Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, wisdom writing. And that's a way of reminding us that this is not just a a, a neatly tied down historical drama, it's actually got timeless wisdom, this book, and that's our title, Famine and Fortune. It's about how God is able to bring fortune to faithful people through a period of famine. So, today's text, just these first five verses, having had that kind of introduction, brings us back to choices and their consequences. It's the story, in these first five verses, of a pretty discouraging series of events in Naomi's life and her husband, Elimelech. And most of these first five verses is essentially two questionable decisions that this family made. Verse 2, if you look down at the text now, verse 2, we've seen um, that the judges are ruling, there's a famine in the land, and this family, Elimelech from Bethlehem in Judah, therefore uh, it's a famous place, Bethlehem. Um, The hints are here that perhaps this is quite a well-to-do family as well, uh, because Elimelech's name is it means my God is king. Suggests he comes from a wealthy family. His wife, Naomi, um, her name means pleasant or lovely. That's all kind of good, isn't it, so far? My God is king. It you know, sounds like a very faithful guy. Um, Naomi, pleasant, his wife. But their son's names are more worrying. Um, he's taken these names not from Hebrew, as perhaps he should have done, but from the Canaanites around them, they're foreign names. And where in our country, you know, David means strong, Zoe means life, great names. Marlon means sickly, 
you know, pasty. And kilion means fading away or dying out. So they're not kind of auspicious names, are they, for your first and second born sons? And another reason it's tough here, a clue here under the judges, is that there is a famine going on. The shelves at Sainsbury's are bare. Elimelech and Naomi are going to their larder, and the last loaf of bread is there. This is the end. So rather than do nothing, verse 1, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, Moab's about 50 miles away, sort of southeast of Israel. Uh, It was a green and pleasant land. Uh, The grass is greener there, literally. And it's only intended here to be a short stay. They went to live for a while. It's the old word sojourning, like a long holiday. Um, So he takes, as it were, a kind of a summer job in Moab to feed his family. You know, in one way, a very sensible thing to do. A bit like you or me, if, if it got tough in Norwich, moving to Essex for a few weeks to go and what are they doing? I don't know what they're doing in Essex. Pick strawberries? I don't know, but a summer job. And you think, well, nothing wrong with that, except that the text suggests this is a questionable decision from the point of view of God. You see, Moab may have been somewhere with bread, It's also somewhere with pagan religion, child sacrifice, no less, and it's very recently enslaved Israel for 18 of its years. So you get this thing, you know, they they were in Bethlehem, a great place. The name means house of bread, in fact. Not a place for long-term famine at all. But they choose to go to Moab, Bethlehem to Moab. And it seems, therefore, this is a questionable decision Elimelech's making. You get the kind of feeling that Elimelech here is placing his material gain over his family's spiritual welfare. Now, his belly is more important than their prayer life. And it's ironic, really, isn't it, if that's what's going on here. The man that's named, my God, is king, Elimelech, is actually acting as if his belly is king. Material greed, perhaps. Lack of faith. Uh, So often in life, what starts as a, just a brief intention, though, becomes a long-term habit. That's what happens here. Verse 2, verse 1, they went there to live for a while. Verse 2, they've by now bought a house. They've settled down. They've sent out change of address cards. It's not a holiday now, is it? Any intention of returning from foreign Moab to Israel has gone and little by little we imagine they're adopting the cultures the habits, perhaps the faith of the foreign country we know in fact from verse 4 that they lived there for at least 10 years not just for a summer and they only then leave because of circumstances changing but there's still this kind of hope here in verse 2 that the move is going to be a good one a good choice. There's food on the table. You know, maybe even now some luxuries, a, a bigger TV, Moabite, high-speed internet maybe, I don't know. But it's looking okay, isn't it? But then verse 3, it's really the heart of this little passage. Verse 3, that hope is dashed brutally. In, in just a few words, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. All the hopes are gone. 
Again, the text stops short of suggesting this is God's direct judgment upon him for making an unwise decision. But you wonder if there's a connection, if his questionable decision at least made his family vulnerable like this. Far from home now, foreign land, no family around them, and with no father. There's a warning, certainly, that questionable actions can lead to tragic consequences. Elimelech's moved far from his spiritual home and his people, and now his family is reaping the consequences. But we think not all is lost. She still has, Naomi, two sons. If they can only kind of grow to adulthood and marry and find employment and maybe have children themselves, she'll have a family, she'll have grandchildren, she'll have support in her old age and so on. And so verse 4 continues with a bit of hope here. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other Ruth. But here is actually the second questionable decision. The move to Moab and now the marriage to Moabite women. At one level, it's the obvious thing to do, isn't it, to marry? Um, It means acceptance in a foreign culture. It means family. It means children. It might mean securing the family name as well for Naomi through her children and grandchildren. And actually, the Old Testament, it did prohibit marrying Canaanites if you moved into Canaan as an Israelite, but it didn't prohibit marrying people in a foreign country if you moved there. So technically, they're not breaking Old Testament law. And yet, this does again seem a questionable decision. Because to marry into a foreign culture was and still is to potentially adopt that faith as well. And we know that Naomi remains a believer in the Lord. She has her ups and downs, as we're going to see next week. She remains a believer, though. Ruth, in fact, becomes a believer. Which, again, is a fantastic thing. But you get the impression that these two sons, sickly and fading, uh, that their names actually reflect their faith as well as their, perhaps their health. They're not strong believers. And Orpah, uh, the other wife that uh, Kilion marries, shows no sign of conversion at all. And just as we begin to wonder, you know, will this go well? Will they have children? Will they reach prosperity and security? Naomi's hopes are dashed again, brutally. Ten years pass, no children come along, so childlessness is tragically hit this family, and then both sons die. So it couldn't get worse, both sons die. So verse 5 summarizes, doesn't it, really the outcome, the consequences of Elimelech's decision ten years earlier. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. It's a pretty bleak end to the reading, isn't it, this morning? The discomfort of the famine has simply been replaced by the desolation of this multiple bereavement and poverty. Moab had looked to them like a door to hope. It's turned out to be a dead end. I read this week about a play about the Irish potato famine by someone called Gerald Healy, entitled The Black Stranger. It tells of the British government who put the starving men of, of, of Ireland to work digging roads, which, although it was hard labour, did at least give them some dignity. They were doing something. 
Uh, but not long after into the story, the character named Michael finds out that the road that they are building has no destination. And so in kind of tragic amazement, he cries out, they're making roads that lead nowhere. And sometimes the choices that we make in life can feel like that too, can't they? That we've done all these things, we thought it was for a purpose, but it's led nowhere. I remember a lady that we knew in North London with her husband and two children, a son and a daughter, for whom their parents doubtless had great hopes and certainly great love, but tragically, both of them struggled with mental illness and died in sad circumstances. Finally, her husband died too. And she was left, still actually with remarkable faith and courage, but surely wondering why her family life had become such an apparent road to nowhere. Perhaps there are others here this morning who've maybe left a job, thinking it would take us into another job that would open up our future for us and be a great place to be, and the company wasn't what we thought, and the company went bust, and we lost our job. And we struggled to find other ones after that. And you end up, don't you, wondering... Where was God in those decisions? Why didn't he lead me more securely through that? Or others have perhaps seen a friend enter a romantic relationship and you've seen the great joy on their face, but you've also seen perhaps a a mismatch in the values of their partner with theirs and you've been worried, but it's really a good thing for them to go into. And then... A few years down the line, you've heard that they've separated and both have been brutally hurt by it. And our friend, perhaps even, they've lost their faith. See, in Naomi's story so far, every verse has revealed either a foolish decision or a tragic consequence or both. And it's remarkable, isn't it, in the Bible that we find such an honest depiction of ordinary human life. The thing that we all walk through and live through week by week, year by year. Choices and consequences. At the very least, this does show, doesn't this book, as we're going to see, that God is deeply interested in what seem like the small decisions of our lives. It's actually wonderful that this story not only does that, but centers on the characters of women in an ancient culture where women are almost unmentioned in stories and histories. So Naomi is the great character here, and Ruth, obviously, we're going to see, is going to become the great character of the story. And Naomi's husband, Elimelech, hardly gets a mention, even in his brief time here. But as we'll see next time, it's not all doom and gloom. Please do keep coming back for this series. It's a great story. And the hidden hand of God really is at work for good, saving and rescuing his faithful people. Um, And that's why, even in these first five verses, there are at least two hopeful signs, even in these first five rather bleak verses, that should keep us listening and hopeful and coming. Firstly, God works for good in all things. Quoting, of course, from a a verse in Romans chapter 8, God works for uh, good in all things for those that love him. If you're a Bible reader and you listen to the events of this story, they will ring bells for you. You've got famine here. You've got God's people moving to a foreign land because of famine. 
you've also got childlessness. Apparently, no hope of the family line being continued despite God's promises. It rings bells, doesn't it, with Bible stories from the Old Testament. You think of Abraham and Sarah longing for a child. You think of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and his other sons experiencing famine and going to Egypt in search of food. And you begin to think, maybe this won't all end badly after all. Maybe if if God is in this, things will work out for good in the end. And Naomi follows a God here, and she knows this, that, that has a track record of intervening for his people when things are tough. And who works for good in all things. And when God's people despair, and when we look up in faith, we find that good things begin to happen. And we'll see that's going to be the case for Naomi and her family. It's the case today. God will not leave his faithful people without help. He won't leave us, as it were, stuck at the end of verse 5, but the story will continue. So why not, between now and next Sunday, why not read the rest of Ruth? It would be a great thing to do this week. Just read through it. It's only four short chapters. Um, and look for the story of hope that's there. Maybe at the end of the service day, ask the person next to you, if, if things in this, this reading this morning have really touched on your life, ask the person next to you to, just to listen and maybe pray with you briefly at the end of the service. If it's raising really sensitive things for you this morning. But keep coming and keep hopeful. God works for good in all things. And lastly, God sends rescue in unexpected ways. Ruth's hardly mentioned in these first five verses, but she's going to become the heroine of this story, the faith heroine in some ways of the Old Testament, one of the great people of the Bible. We're going to read on and see that the Lord takes this foreigner, this foreign woman, and uses her faithfulness to rescue the family that she's married into, to restore Naomi's fortunes and family. And even more than that, Ruth is going to become a close ancestor of no less than King David, the king that the judges were looking for. All because a faithful people uses faithful, a faithful God uses faithful people. Because a young woman from Moab married into an Israelite family and followed her God. Name is God. No one expected that then. No one expected this family to be redeemed and given God's blessing. Um, Any more than a thousand years or so later, anyone expected that back in Bethlehem, a child would be born in obscure circumstances into a relatively obscure family who would go on to be the saviour, the Lord Jesus. And today... No one expects, do they, that God's going to keep sending rescue into our families and our relationships and our friendships and our communities and our cities. But God will do that. Colleagues at work who are sceptical come to faith in Christ. God does that. Churches grow in parts of the world where persecution is trying to close them. God does that. And today, Christ is still gathering people into his kingdom from all the four corners of the world. God does that. Let's pray together.
Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the honesty of this story and the reality it paints of human life and choices. And we pray for those of us that perhaps have been through experiences, something like Naomi's, um, places of um, difficulty, tragedy, of hardship. We bring to you whatever part our own choices made in those events. As we ask your forgiveness that sometimes our decisions any of us make are foolish, we also pray your comfort and strength that we might look to you and trust that you are the God who's faithful to your people, who brings good even through difficult and strange times, who works for good, who rescues in the most unexpected ways. And thank you especially for rescuing us in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.